Hello, and welcome to the 10th anniversary year of the Minorities in Publishing podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Baker. The Minorities in Publishing podcast first aired on August 14th, 2014. And this year, I'll be celebrating with new guests, return guests, and some book giveaways. For new and returning listeners, you may know you can find the podcast on Tumblr at minoritiesinpublishing.tumblr.com, as well as on Twitter and Instagram at minoritiesinpub. You can also sign up for the monthly MIP newsletter for info on new episodes, guests and industry news, as well as job or writing opportunities. Minorities of Publishing is available wherever you listen to podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. It's also available on the podcasting hosting server Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. Thanks so much for listening and hope you enjoy this episode. Happy New Year, everybody. I am hoping your 2024 is chill, that your end of 2023 was restful and peaceful as possible, and hope you're entering this new year with goodness and love and all that wonderful stuff that is much deserved by everybody. I am so, so happy to be speaking to Matt Mendez, the author of Barely Missing Everything and The Broke Hearts. And that's a duology. Is that fair to say? I would say so. Yes, they're companions. I guess when we think duologies, I think people might think more of the fantasy and all that stuff. But I feel like they stand alone. And yet, when you read the Brokart, I mean, there's the consistent references to what happens in Barely Missing because Barely Missing Everything, because everyone's been so affected by that. And we're watching them on this journey. Um, so I can't wait to talk to you about like the one-two punch of those books. And also Matt wrote this lovely story collection called Twitching Heart. Oh, thank you so much. And I would for sure say all three books are in the same like universe that I'm constantly writing and working on. All three books all have characters that interchange. They all take place in the same neighborhood. Like the themes I'm working on are all kind of tied together. And to me, the world that I'm working in and kind of writing towards, they're all, to me, this one kind of ethos in place. So even though Twitching Hearts, which was published way back in 2012 and is an adult book, there's definitely elements and aspects of that book that carry over into the two young adult novels that were published, you know, many years later. I've been thinking a lot about this, as especially as someone who teaches and works with writers, you know, either in an editorial space or workshop space and whatnot. Do you feel like Twitching Heart helped prepare you to write Barely Missing Everything and The Broke Hearts and whatever is coming next? And therefore, you know, each book kind of propels you in a way with your craft to be able to write the next one? Oh, absolutely. And really in multiple ways. So Twitching Heart was written mostly when I was in grad school. So I was, you know, literally learning how to write stories in grad school. So I was getting my MFA in creative writing and in fiction. And the 10 stories that are in Twitching Heart, the stories that I was workshopping and getting feedback from my cohort, my peer group, and my uh, writing professors who were really helping me hone those stories. And at the same time, I was kind of learning to find my voice there and what I was finding important as a writer 
and exploring the world and the stories that I was interested in telling. So I was, you know, learning craft, learning how to tell stories that I like to write, and then also the worlds and the characters that I wanted to explore. So there's these two different things kind of going on at the same time. And there's definitely those two things just build and build on top of each other. And then I started writing Barely Missing Everything before the Twitching Heart was even published. So there was definitely this forward momentum that was coming out of Twitching Heart that immediately led to uh, Barely Missing Everything. And so then with the Broke Hearts, did you know that that was going to come? Once Barely Missing Everything was done, did you know you wanted to continue to follow these folks? Well, there was a second book on the contract. It didn't have to be a companion book or anything to do with the bro card. So my first impulse was to kind of start new and write something completely different. But kind of like when I was writing Twitching Hearts, the story for Barely Missing Everything and, this, and the world I was writing when kind of bubbled in from Twitching Heart, the world of Barely Missing Everything and the neighborhood and the feel and the kind of the themes I was working with, the same thing happened with the Brokarts where this character from Barely Missing Everything, Danny, who was this third friend of the best friends in Barely Missing Everything. There's Juan, there's JD, who were these friends, these best friends. And then Danny, who completed the trio of, of uh, high school buds. He was the third character and he wasn't a point of view character and barely missing everything. But his story was one that was just super interesting to me. He was this kid who was going to kind of get the dream that a lot of us have, these first generation, second generation Mexican-American kids. He was going to get to go to school. His parents had set him up. He was going to go to college. He was going to be the first kid in his family to get there. And he was going to kind of live this American dream. I'll put that in quotes. He was going to kind of have this thing that a lot of us were pursuing, this chance of higher education, this chance to make your family proud, this this thing that we're all kind of working to provide to our kids. He was going to be the kid that gets it. And he didn't really have a point of view and barely missing everything. And I kept thinking about this, this young person's life going into college and what that was going to be like. So I just couldn't let that story go. I wanted to write what his story was going to be because everybody thinks that the story is a happily ever after and that there's going to be no story there, that everything's going to be this yellow brick road for this young boy. Then it turns out it is a yellow brick road. It's got the Wizard of Oz. It's full of tribulation and it's full of kind of a false promise. And that's the novel I wanted to write after Barely Missing Everything or that I couldn't let go of. And then I ended up writing that novel too. That's nice when it, there is kind of this organic nature to it because I've been talking to even more kid writers and they tend to get multi-book deals or you do two book deals because the age group, right? is like they're trying right. to get folks to publish before the age group ages out, quote unquote, or to build the career in a different way or a similar way to adult. Um, but, you know, for some adult writers, they get like a little bit of a longer run post-publication of that first book. And so it's, it's nice to hear that you're like, no, this was something I really wanted to do. But it, it also read naturally because there's this progression for everybody of what happens after and so we're following, like you said, there are three characters and barely missing everything. But it's not a spoiler to reveal that Juan dies. It's mentioned very early on in the second, and it's in the copy. So that's why I feel like 
yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 everything. And so now we're with JD and Danny, but we also get different mediums, right? We get like past stories to understand more folks like the Villa Nuevas as, as fighters, right? Especially the males, the screenplay that you have because JD is a screenwriter and Danny's a visual artist. And so it really felt like we're watching something after that kind of high school moment, because YA can is really usually confined to high school, but it's like there is life after that. And life, as you say, is not tied nicely in a bow. It is not like we had prom and everything's great. Like they dealt with a big trauma that is still very much affecting them and that they're working through still as teens. When you progress from that story, when you kind of have this finite ending in one way, and you progress with them in a new way, an extension of who they are. Like, how was that for you as a writer to just be able to see beyond that, but to also write it? So it was a little bit of a challenge, right? Because Barely Missing Everything ends on these kind of final notes. So at the end of Barely Missing Everything, Juan, he dies and he is killed by the police at the end of Barely Missing Everything. And his friend group is thrown into turmoil. JD, who was his best friend, watches him actually killed. He's traumatized by this. He ends up making this rash decision and joining the military right after that. Danny, who was at the party that... Juan and JD leave. He's, you know, also traumatized, although he didn't witness the murder and the killing of his friend, but he loses his best friend and he's hurt. He's sad, depressed, and he feels guilty about having this future of after high school. But they've lost their friend. They've just graduated high school, which is this endpoint for, for young people. High school is this big, huge milestone. And then there's like, well, what do I do now? Those four years when you're in high school, graduation is this huge milestone that everybody in those four years is working towards. And there's this afterwards. It's like, well, what are you going to do after high school? And everybody's kind of looking towards that. I wanted to write the story of like, hey, well, now you're in the afterward. What is that like? What is this frontier you're on? And these kids are on this frontier and they're beginning to realize like, hey, life really never stops moving. They're at this point that they're supposed to be in the future. They're here and everything that happened in the past, they're still dragging along with them. And they're supposed to be preparing for this future. And it's like, well, now what do we do? Danny is starting college. His father, the Sarge, is putting all this pressure on him to graduate college, but he really doesn't understand what that means. And really his father, who's never been to college, doesn't quite know what that means either. And he can help him navigate that. JD, who's joined the Air Force, realizes really, really quickly that life is real. He's got a real job and he learns in, in six months that he's been in the Air Force for six months and now has to deploy. And things are really real. And they're still having to deal with the past that hasn't let go. And these two boys are wondering if their friendship is even still viable, which I think a lot of young people learn when they finish high school is that they can still be friends with the people they were friends with just six months ago. Their lives are moving in such different directions and at a really fast pace. And that's what a big part of the book is about is friendship and growing up and how we maintain our friendships, how we move into the future when your heart's really kind of broken. And these two boys are really heartbroken. What kind of is a thread throughout the book is this inability to communicate. The For finding sure. of vocabulary and the ways in which their respective art allows them to do that or, or meeting a new person like Isabella mm. or Isa for JD or like there is points where JD is very honest 
and then points where he can't communicate. And Danny seems like the one who's less able to communicate in certain ways, um, depending on the person, especially with Sarge. But they do have that relationship and banter that is really important as they're realizing like life in itself is finite. It's not a, I don't want to bestow this, it's a heavy novel. The Brokehearts is this heavy novel because it it's real. It felt like a very real novel. You know what I mean? The dialogue, the experiences, the realizations, the fact that people don't necessarily forgive is very real to me. You know what I mean? Especially with JD's dad. Sure. He's like, I don't want you to be happy. And his dad was like, what? And I was like, that's real. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know what? That's real honest. I respect it. <laughs> For sure. That's, I think, one of the main the main truths of the book and the, one of the main things that I was trying to write about this book is like these boys from a very young age don't learn how to uh, communicate and talk to each other. And they learn how to through these really kind of securitist roots. And a lot of it starts with their dads. So to me, that was a really important part of the book was to write about fathers and sons. How young boys learn how to become men is to have their hearts broken. And that's kind of like the overarching theme of the broke hearts so like the novel starts with uh in a flashback which is unusual for a novel and nah. one of the reasons <laughs> well, some of us a little rely bit. a little too heavily on the flashback man. <laughs> i think that's true yeah i think it really works with yours because it, it really establishes character in a real way that because it comes up again it's not a, like you did it and then you never do it again. It True. is, you know, it comes up every few chapters that we're like, oh, we're continuing the story about this fight. Right. I don't start it in prologue. No, it's you don't. No. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, I mean, there's plenty of novels that start in prologue. The way the novel's structured and these continual Loteria style flashes mm -hmm. where we learn about the father. So yeah. it, in order to write a father-son story, I wanted to have... The Sarge, which is Danny's father, and then Danny and show their relationship in the present story and show this tension between a father and a son. But I wanted to start it with another father-son conflict and realize that the Sarge just didn't become the Sarge one day. He wasn't born this kind of gruff, single-minded guy, that he started off this sensitive kid. And that it was his relationship with his dad that made him the Sarge. As the stories progress, you realize that the way that these fathers are raising their kids, their sons, isn't to teach them to be bad people or to be mean. That it's done with this kind of tenderness that still somehow makes them, as they grow older, less tender. It's protective. It's defensive. It's a way to teach these boys to survive. And it's done with the best of intention, but it cuts off this tenderness that these boys have. And they learn how to be tender in these different ways. They heal their hearts in these much different ways that are subtle, that they take these other creative outlets. Danny learns how to paint murals and he shows how much he cares about other people through his art, but maybe not as directly as he could. And the same with JD who wants to write and wants to express himself in these different ways. And it's never, like you said, as with direct communication, these boys just don't have the tools for that. And those tools I wanted to show get kind of plucked from them early on. And it felt very immediate. 
that flashback. You're like, oh, okay. And especially since names are shared and whatnot. So if you're really coming into it a bit cold, like I am, I was coming into the bro cards, not having read, barely missing everything and having context. And so it was like, whoa, there's some stuff going down. (laughs) And then you're, you know, and then you, you see like another urgent thing happens on Danny's side. He's dealing with something else on top of everything that you've conveyed as well. Just a very rich novel that has so many explorations and something that I've been having conversations with folks too for my YA is the parents are very much present. And sometimes in Kidlet, I include YA in that. And I am having conversations with, and my YA novel is that the presence of parents is really imperative because their choices affect their kids, right? And sometimes in YA, middle grade, et cetera, we're really looking at the kids and we should be because that's, they're the main characters and da-da-da-da, all that stuff. And we can't dismiss the impact of not just society or the one's immediate ecosystem or, you know, school community, but the parents, the parents are so crucial <laughs> to like, yes. what's going on and who you are. And so I wanted to ask a little bit, you are a parent too, right? And yes, so coming yes, out with that experience and writing for young people and tapping into recognizing both perspectives because you write the parents with a lot of consideration too, where they're realizing, oh, maybe I've messed up and and I, I wanted to be better or I, I want something for myself. And because I was never happy, I can never be a good parent to you. Oh, absolutely. And I want to write parents as three-dimensional as I could possibly make them. Because I, well, first, just in, in Wyatt, I want young people when they're reading them to kind of see the adults as imperfect as they feel about themselves. I want them to see them as it's like, oh, parents and adults are going through it too. And not necessarily just to have empathy for adults and their parents, but which of course I want them to have that, but to also to know that this is a lifelong thing. People are always coming of age. To me, that's just a, a thing that I've learned growing up is that no matter what age I'm at, I'm always coming to a different point in life where I'm going into some unknown thing. I'm always learning. I'm always becoming something else, which is how I felt as an adolescent. I'm becoming, I'm going through puberty. My body's changing. I'm doing this, but my body is always changing. It's always becoming something different. It's always doing something new. I'm always becoming a different person. That's never, ever going to stop. That uncertainty is never going away. So I want the adult characters, I want the parents to have that same uncertainty in the novels, to always be uncertain and for young readers to read about the adults in those private moments. So when parents are talking to them or, you know, you see adults always in these positions where they feel really certain or act with certitude in the books, I want them to be vulnerable to be uncertain, to have these moments where they don't know what's going on. And I know myself as a parent, I share those moments pretty openly with my kids that, hey, I don't have all the answers here. I apologize pretty frequently to them when I make mistakes. I'm like, well, 
here was a mistake here. I was probably too hard on you here. We're making a decision. What do you think we should do? I try to get input and try to let them know that I'm just a person and that we're all kind of going through this thing together because I think that's pretty important to do. And we'll see whether or not that pays dividends down the road. I don't know because I don't know. And I'm pretty certain that nobody knows what the hell's going on. I can and, say I confidently agree. <laughs> yeah, right? Nobody knows. Know. And we all are, it's like a very good kind of act. Yeah. Oh, I know what's going on. Because, you know, you don't want to appear in a certain way. When I say you, I mean like this in this royal we kind of thing, sure. right? Oh, of I, like yeah, one exactly does not want that. to appear in any specific way. So going back to all of that with the parents, right, you want to protect your kid in the best way possible. And kind of goes back to what you said about especially fathers and sons, but also mothers and sons. I feel like JD and his mom have a kind of tight, yeah, it's a little bit of friction there because they see yeah. each other in one another as well, right? For sure. Then there's the extension of their friendship and then the mentorship that happens too. So there's like a lot of adults still in their lives. And they're still on this kind of cusp of teenagedom. I think we both have this realization of, like you said, when you graduate high school, it doesn't become like you've evolved. But for JD, it's in the Air Force. And for Danny, it's in school, in co community college. Neither of them seem to be taking it well. I feel like JD, though, is taking things a little bit better in the Air Force because he kind of recognizes the seriousness of that situation. Oh, because it's thrust like right in his face every day. So like JD has zero choice. He's kind of on an island where he's at and he's kind of forced to, in a way, grow up. And there's not a lot of choice that JD has as far as adapting. He has to kind of quickly adapt to this new reality that he set himself in. And I think that's just kind of what JD has to do in order just to survive. I feel like JD is in this survival mode in the beginning of the novel and where he was at kind of at the end of barely missing everything where he's forced to just turn on his lizard brain and just kind of survive. And I think there's a, a healing that kind of happens as the Brokeheart progresses where he's kind of reconnecting. He goes back home. He has this kind of blow up with his mother. He reconnects with Danny and he begins to kind of talk with his younger brother and he has this kind of a panic attack and he begins to get himself on the road to becoming a whole person again. I think him meeting Isabel in the bookstore where he starts to feel a little bit like his old self, where he begins to make connections in a way that he hasn't been doing for the past six months. Because really the novel is only, it's a year from the death of Juan and only six months after they graduated high school. So there's really not a lot of time that's passed since all these changes happened for both JD and Danny. So there's still a lot of just emotional rawness and trauma that they're both boys are going through, but especially JD. So to me, he's in this really stunted kind of space. And you are also a military veteran? That's true. Yes. Yeah. So that wasn't not that I experienced a trauma that JD had, but I joined the military right out of high school as well. So I was in a very similar position where immediately after high school, I left for basic training and then six months later I was deployed oh wow so from experience I kind of understand that kind of rush of oh this is really real right away 
where your friends are, are like some of them are going to college, some of them are getting a jobs, a lot of them still live at home and you're living this completely different kind of life that just feels so separate from anything, any kind of reality that you share with them and you feel like this disconnect from them that feels really severe mm. and it's hard to, to relate to them. And I, that really comes internally. They're not, they're not like standoffish with you, but you feel like this schism is there because their life is so, so recognizable to you anyway, to their old life where it's like, well, you're still living at home. You're still getting to go to school. You still get together all the time. And then you just feel like you're just disconnected from it in this way that makes you feel jealous. And JD feels that way where he just feels like he keeps losing things. He feels like he doesn't have a home anymore. His mom has moved in with his grandma. His old house that he used to live in is not there anymore. His parents are divorced. He just feels completely isolated in the and then the broke hearts. And that's kind of where JD's operating now. And he just, he's having a complete kind of breakdown at the beginning of the novel. How much did you want to convey of that kind of experience? Because I'm not going to spoil it, obviously. But you said JD gets into the thick of it to an extent, right? It doesn't go slow (laughs) (laughs) for JD uh, in terms of like understanding what he is responsible for, what the chain of command, the importance of following the rules, what can happen when one doesn't do what they're supposed to be doing. For so sure. How much did you really actually want to convey, especially when writing something for younger readers? I wanted to be pretty honest with what that could be, because a lot of young readers are going to be in that exact same boat, especially for the audience that I'm writing towards, which is, I mean, I want to write for a wide young readership, but really I'm pointing towards readers like myself who didn't have books like this growing up. And if there's a young Mexican-American boy who picks this book up, who's actually thinking about joining the military that change comes at you fast and that life can come at you quick. And that's not a decision to make as lightly as JD makes it in the book or as quickly as he makes it. And then his life is now completely different. You know, those recruiters are in the high schools looking for young brown and black boys to come join young poor people to join. And I'm not saying that I'm unhappy with the decision. I'm currently in the military now it's worked for me, but I mean, that's still not something that, everybody should do or if you're going to do you need to think about it carefully it's not something to be done lightly and it's certainly not for everyone i remember a lot of folks in my high school went and mostly the latinx boys yeah they were we make up a significant portion of the military Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's mostly you know lower income people end up joining the military and and uh, i think for JD in the book, he makes that decision to join. And then that he's wondering if he hasn't made the biggest mistake of his life. I think it's a line in the book. He's wondering that pretty quickly into it. And then, you know, the Sarge Danny's dad also went and did that route. I know my dad was in the army. I was in the air force. There's tons of people in my family who have military backgrounds and that's not an unusual thing. So I wanted to write to that experience and then have it be as realistic as I could make it and not have it just be something that's just this one-sided patriotic type thing. I wanted it to be a realistic experience. Right. Because he's hands-on, but it's a very different reality for him once he sees the effect of what his work Mm -hmm. can do. And that was a very, to me, poignant moment of, oh, wow. Like, this is what all this comes to. This This is the culmination of all those drills, of all this, you know, waking up early, of all this, you know, checklist and all this stuff. Um, For sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wanted him to be cognizant of what he what he was doing, what the training's for, and mm -hmm. the totality of what he's a part of, mm -hmm. the whole thing. Right. And it's cool because it's also in the reflection of it, I think there's no judgment, which I think was very tactfully done because I think some folks could put where that realization becomes something that maybe radicalizes someone in a specific kind of way. But it really was like he owns what he does. For he sure. It's the decision he makes. He wonders, like you say, but he owns it. Yeah, I think he comes to an understanding of what he's doing, which I think is which I think is like a, a mature thing for JD to do to understand what he's doing to understand what the people around him are doing and for him to make sense of his place in the machine the organization he's in in a way that maybe other members aren't and to understand how people may understand the work he's doing what they may think of him and be like well that's okay this is what this means to me this is what it could mean to other people and for him to begin to make sense of all those different things for himself and then to work all those different ideas out in his head and to see if he's okay with himself and what he's doing. So there's like all these topics that we've discussed and how is it to not just write about them in a book, but to also then have to go out and talk about them, especially to or for younger audiences, maybe with teachers, librarians, well, my parents, fellow parents, were also closely associated with teen audiences who who may really connect with this book in so many ways and have so much enlightened to them of, in terms of like, I never thought of these things this way, or I can totally relate to the issues with, between fathers and sons, mothers and sons, um, expectation and reality, all that stuff. Like, how's that been for you, especially going from you know, you had the Twitching Heart, which was 2012, and then Barely Missing Everything is 2019, right? And yeah. then 2023, The Broke Hearts comes out. And so you have some years between each of those books to hopefully rest and, you know, <laughs> enjoy creating, of course, but hopefully rest because the, the hustle don't stop. Uh, That's true. But, but how does that kind of change in terms of like how you're engaging with folks for between these books? Well, I mean, luckily I give myself such a, there's so much stuff that I pack in the books. I give myself just a lot of different places to go as far as conversations go, which is great. You get to kind of talk about all sorts of different things. Like you get to talk about fathers and sons. You get to talk about the military, if that's what people want to talk about and barely missing everything. I used to have wonderful conversations, not wonderful, I mean, but the topic's not wonderful, but about, you know, death row and capital punishment, because that novel begins with uh, a man on death row who sends Fabi, who is Juan's mother, a letter. And it was just this, it was, again, it's about fathers and sons, where Juan, who was the main character, was looking for his father and looking for his identity. So getting to talk about that was, was just a kind of a, an interesting conversation. And then talked about choices and then parental choices, which we were talking a little bit earlier and how parental choices affect children. And Bobby's choice to never reveal her father's identity leads Juan on this quest to try to find his father. And, and to me, I... To me, these worlds and this universe that I like to write about just leaves this really rich kind of tapestry to kind of talk into and talk to, to, to teachers and to librarians and to students about all sorts of these kind of topics that really, really interest me. And that's before we even get to talk, to get into talking about, you know, the border, our culture, Mexican-American culture, and things that are also pretty 
close to my heart that I love to talk about and travel and get to see kids that don't really get to see themselves in literature, which is what I really love to do is bring this book to uh, communities that are underserved and don't really get to see themselves in books and really bring this book to those, to, you know, my community and share it with them. It's so interesting. Have you gotten to talk to a lot of teens specifically? I'm starting to talk more to teens and I'm like, oh, wow, this is a whole different trajectory. <laughs> I have. Holding attention. I, I certainly want to talk to more teens. So unfortunately, in 2019, I was doing a whole bunch of it. And then when the paperback came out in 2020, everything shut yeah. down and things yeah. are barely beginning to clear back up for school visits and everything. So I've done some stuff over Zoom, which isn't as fun, but festivals are back open now and school visits are beginning to ramp back up. So getting in front of getting back in classrooms is uh, slowly coming back online when I'm beginning to go back out and do that, which is fun. Like bookstore, bookstore appearances are fun and festival panels is fun too. But getting back in classrooms is really, to me, the best part. Getting to talk to teens is the best part. And getting into high schools and doing library visits and talking to teens is always, to me, the funnest part. I know. I feel like there'd be so many great discussions, additional discussions that are to come, obviously, um, with your book and also you know, just like thinking more about what comes after and where where people feel like they might think they're being pushed towards versus what they really want to do. And also the kind of, I guess, bigger question of, is it even fair to put this on anybody at any, especially at 18, you know, like, what do you want to do? Oh, uh, where are you going to sure. go next? Yeah, decide now what you're going to do with the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> buy things yeah. <laughs> incur debt <laughs> yeah i know commit hundreds of thousands of dollars to study one thing right that you may totally change your mind on. like how many oh, lawyers come writers <laughs> have i met no, it's nuts. I mean, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, taking your time and making mistakes and figuring out what life's going to be. I mean, life is long, hopefully, for most people, and you're going to have time to figure that out. I'm a sloppy, messy person. So to me, my advice to people is like, hey, take your time, make mistakes, try things, fail. To me, I learn from failure. I'm a slow writer, probably to my publisher's irritation you know I mean, it takes me a long time to write a book join to, the club matt we're in a yeah. very similar club <laughs> takes me a while to put things together and to kind of especially the way i structure books which is a little unusual i like to have different ways to put a book together i like telling stories in idiosyncratic ways to me that's just the way my brain works it's the way i, I like to hear stories and that's the way i put them together and to me I like to live my life the same way. I like probably a little odd and a little goofy at times and my life just moves in different ways. And my suggestion to young people is to, you know, do what feels kind of comfortable. And to me, the idea of picking a path at 18 that's going to set in stone what your future is going to be is, I don't know, it seems kind of ludicrous that we would hold people to that and decide right now, this is what your future is going to be decide now and then live 60, 70 years with that one decision. That's crazy to me. And it's so inherited at the same time. Sure. My grandparents and my parents is like, we did this and we retired and got our pension. And that's what <laughs> we did. And you're like, okay, 
October. I'm glad that worked out for you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I've always, it's weird. Um, I'm in and not in publishing as much in terms of a career as in I get a paycheck every two weeks. And so I've kind of stuck with what I did. So I, I guess I've kind of been that group of, and I'm fine with that, but right. I think it's, but, and you can still understand it's an unrealistic expectation for people. Cause. Oh, well, I've stuck with the same career too, but that's more out of like necessity. I need insurance. My kids need glasses and insurance and things to pay for. But, uh, you know, I write because that's what I really want to do. But I'm not going to write full time, although I feel like I write full time because I do it all the time. But I'm not going to have that be my sole source of income until I'm able to do that, where I'm making enough money to do that without having another job. That's just like a practical thing that I'm going to do. So I'm going to be dual jobbing it until I can uh, afford to retire from the other job. I definitely wouldn't give people that advice of have two jobs the whole time, but that's just the road I'm on. Same, same. So how are you feeling publishing a third book? I feel pretty good about it. It's uh, a big it, feat. You know, finishing one book is a big, big feat. To do three, that's good job, Matt. Well, thank you. <laughs> good job, Matt. If no one's told you. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, as far as the book goes, this is probably the best thing I've written. So I'm like super excited with the book. Normally when a book comes out, I can read it or go back when I'm doing readings or reading passage of it. I'm like, oh, this could be cleaner. I think this could be tighter. And I have like all those kind of editor notes when I'm reading things and I feel like, oh, I don't want to read this anymore. It's like hearing yourself like are watching yourself on TV where you, at least me, where I don't want to see myself. But when I go back and read this and do some like press for it, I'm excited by the book. I like never really got tired of it. So I'm really excited for this book. I really, I think it's the best thing I've done so far. And I'm really excited by it. That's like just so joyous. It's really kind of coming through the Zoom of just like, oh, and it really, it's such a wonderful book. It's really oh, thank wonderful you. book. You can see the care that went into the structure of it and how it all works together and whatnot. It's wonderful to be introduced to your work with something you're, you're saying is like, this is the best thing I've written, just so you know. <laughs> today, I mean, I'm, I'm working on getting better with each one, but to date, I think this is the thing I'm oh, like that's wonderful. happy with. Yeah. That's so wonderful. And so what's next? If, if, you're, if that's a fair question, I understand if it's not a fair question. Oh sure. So I'm working on uh, I'm working on a third novel. This will be my first one, hopefully in the draft. That take that's in the draft phase. So you know how things always change with drafts. Uh -huh. yes. It's my first one that doesn't take place in El Paso. I live in Tucson now, so this one think this one takes place in Arizona. Is it YA as well? Yes, mm -hmm. it'll be YA, and then I'm also writing a screenplay which is completely different than it has nothing to do with the, with the books I'm working on. It's a completely uh, different thing, which is testing some different writing muscles, which I'm super excited about. Were you always intrigued to write a screenplay or did kind of tapping into who JD was incite that? A little of both. So like JD, I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was younger. So I've always loved like TV and film. And so this getting to write the bro cards where there's a lot of screenplay in in the book itself kind of got those creative juices going again so i'm taking my stab at writing a screenplay and we'll see where that uh where that ends up i really i 
I gravitate to writing dialogue. So some of my early drafts tend to be very dialogue heavy. Uh, and so when I took screenwriting in college, I really liked it because it leaned into what I already liked. And playwriting, I really liked that because I was just like, Ooh, that's awesome. Dialogue. <laughs> I do like writing dialogue too. To me, it's it's one of like the the like the fun part of uh, especially revision where you get to tighten up the dialogue and you get like some really fun back and forth. Yeah. That's what the repartee is always my the my funnest part about the dialogue is getting like some good zings back and forth. I love that part about it. I really do. I just love sometimes you're just like, damn, that was a good you know, like you'll just yeah. watch a movie, you're like, damn, that was really good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my favorite part. Mm -mm. <laughs> sometimes I get carried away and my editor will be like, All right, this is enough of this. We we kind of get the point where my characters can kind of get mean to each other. <laughs> it's just yeah. me. It's just me zinging myself back and forth. <laughs> You're just on fire that day. I was yep, like, that's ah. it. <laughs> Laying waste to myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, because JD and Danny don't kind of zing. like they do zing each other, but they they don't seem mean about it. No, there were some meaner jokes in there that uh, were were really. Oh, okay. <laughs> I could go with a potential another companion, maybe. Because I'm, you know, I feel like this one felt like it ended in, in a very solid place. I won't say good. <laughs> if that's fair. Um, right. But it, it feels like it felt in like a solid place where you're like, oh, okay. I, I, I kind of know where these guys are going from here on out. I will be open to it because uh, you never know. There's always a character that kind of, or the universe you're creating kind of will stay with you. And for me, it began with just little notes in the character. And I was like, well, I don't know what you're doing. And I would kind of write notes. And to me, it's just a world that, or a character that, you know, just unfamiliar for me. I wasn't the kid who had the future kind of set up for himself. I kind of had to carve my own way, but I was so interested in Danny in this because I'm doing that as a parent now for my daughters. I'm the one saving for their college. I'm the one setting a path for them. I'm like, hey, I've done this for you, but they're not asking. Just like Danny isn't asking the Sarge to do all this for them. He wasn't asking for the college. He wasn't asking for the future to be set for him. He wants to create his own path. So the, a lot of that, I'm, I was asking myself those questions because for my two daughters, I'm saving for the college I'm helping them with their schoolwork, but I'm kind of guiding them so they won't have to do the things I did to get to school. So as I'm writing, I'm asking myself, like, am I the Sarge? Am I doing these things? What the Sarge did to Danny, am I doing that to my two daughters? And so these are just kind of the back and forth. We, we, talked, we touched on that a little bit earlier. Well, you know, writing parents and trying to make them human. These are the kind of questions I was asking myself as a parent. I'm like, am I doing what the Sarge did to Danny, to my own children? Because I'm interested in that story because I'm in the Sarge's kind of uh, position now. Am I doing those things? Am I going to, am I making sure, am I being careful to allow my children to make their own choices, even though I'm the one financially setting them up to have that future? Am I going to be holding on tight to their choices because I work so hard to provide this path for them. And if they start to deviate or make mistakes and do all the things I want other kids to do, am I going to hold on tight so they don't, you know, mess up, but put that in quotes, 
and you know somehow squander this this opportunity I've given them, which is you know nonsense. But I think that tendency for parents who've worked hard to provide that is there. I gotta you know guard against doing that myself. It's heavy. Mm -hmm. I don't know how y'all parents do it. We write yeah. books about it. <laughs> Literally, like. Manuals, <laughs> novels, we got everything. We you got know, the we whole write, just, swath. <laughs> just spent four years writing a book about it. It's no big deal. <laughs> You'll get all that out your system. <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> oh, man. This was such a pleasure talking to you. I feel like we got to dig deep into like the books that I, I love when that happens. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's been great. Oh, yay. Yay. I mean, we could talk forever, but I also want to actually get this episode out. <laughs> oh, <that's cool. laughs> it's only fair to you. People need to know what's going on in the Brokarts. And, and I heartily, heartily encourage folks to pick it up, pick up barely missing everything, pick up everything that Matt's written. Because I mean, if we're going to get to the best thing he's ever done, let's Let's see what else is out there. That's right. <laughs> like, like, let's see what else is out there and prepare for what's coming. <laughs> hold me to a standard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you may have set yourself up there, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> Buy the books, though. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> don't wait. No, don't. And so you are on the socials, so folks can't yep. find out what's going on with you. I believe the paperback is going to come out right at the Broke Hearts in 2024. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, if you haven't gotten a chance to jump on the hardcover train, but you still can, obviously. That's and right. We love our local libraries. So please support them. Please, please, please. Absolutely. Um, but there might be a paperback coming out also later this year. And in which case we might hear even more from you in terms of any additional events and all that good stuff. That's right. Cool. And so what's your handles on socials and you have a beautiful website. Let me just, I've been complimenting authors websites because I think you deserve it, especially when you have websites. It is a very organized website. Can I just say? Oh, thank you. It's very organized. Everything's very easy to find. The color scheme matches the two books because there's that purple kind of magenta and orange. And so you have some like, you know, synchronicity there. So just want to just say, very nice well, website. Thank you, I appreciate Matt. it. Yes, very it's, nice it's a, website. It's very pretty. I like it. And that's mattmendez.com. So M-A-T-T-M-E-N-D-E-Z.com. Yeah? That's correct. And then I'm on Instagram at Matt G. Mendez and then threads too. Uh, I'm on X, but hardly, but the same. Matt G. Mendez, M-A-T-T-G-M-E-N-D-E-Z. Okay. All right. Not to push you on the, but if... For anyone who's still there, I'm still there. Minorities in Pub is still there. Jen, Jay Baker, we're, I, I'm still there. I'm there until it shuts down or it gets real sketch or sketchier <laughs> than normal. Or you know what? It's sketch. If the algorithm lets you find me there, I'm there. I know. I'm like, it's just sketch. <laughs> Let me not even say, oh, it's until it gets really, it's sketch. I'm <laughs> 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 not even sugarcoat it. But <laughs> Well, congratulations on the Brokarts. Again, this beautiful book, so layered, so much in there to discuss. And I can't wait to hear more of the discussions you have around this book, but also 
the books in tandem. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm going to have to bring you back on and we'll have to do a book club for both books or something. Oh, for like sure. That. We can totally yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get you to write a companion book and then we'll go on tour. Oh my gosh. I'm kind of just done with this world. People, <laughs> because I, I did do, also do a two book and, uh, and that's what everyone asks. They're like, are you going? I said, no, I'm done. Nope. We're done here. <laughs> Anybody else wants to, you are welcome. I'm done. <laughs> that was eight years done done <laughs> well, the other one took me the barely missing everything took me 10 years 10 wow mm -hmm. and then broke hearts about four four that's freaking that's getting better yeah it's a little faster i shouldn't say better yeah a little faster because i'm similarly it takes me yeah years. it's okay hooray for slow riders yeah we're just contemplating we're very meticulous i feel like that's right yeah we know ourselves that's right <laughs> we know ourselves. the more we talk matt and i are just realizing we're like separated at birth apparently i think so <laughs> we're gonna be say something Jen. and i'm like same <laughs> we're gonna be like, besties Jen. <laughs> we are from here on out we're just gonna be like, how long are you on this book? Ten to three years, Jen. Nope. <laughs> You're five. Let's go. Found. That's how it's going to be. Tortoises yeah, this, win the race. We do. We do. Oh, man. But again, just compliments and, and congrats again on this great Thank book. you so much. Oh. That's so gracious of you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your time and just spending time with me and be able to talk about it. So uh, it's been my pleasure. And thank y'all for listening to this wonderful episode of the new year 2024 with author Matt Mendez. And once again, the book is The Broke Hearts and also Get Barely Missing Everything as well. They are both available now for you to buy, for you to request, use your points on Audible, Spotify, whatever. Like, <laughs> like these books are out there and I just wanna emphasize that, especially as we're seeing so many book bans and the increasing number of them. And it's just crucial for these stories and these, these really wonderful and tender tenderly written stories to be reached out so again i'm just so happy to have you on but also to be the first episode on the 10th anniversary year it's really an honor oh it's my pleasure thank you so much thank you i know we'll be keeping in touch absolutely for sure thank you all for listening thank you thanks again for listening to the minorities and publishing podcast as a reminder you can find the podcast on tumblr at minorities or on instagram and twitter at minorities and pub and you can sign up for the monthly newsletter also feel free to rate the podcast on your listening platform take care